Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 13b, Aeneid Book 2, Lines 234-249. In this episode, you will learn that Troy's final day is futile and sad, and that Aeneas feels at least partially responsible for it. Dividimus muros et moinia pandimus urbis. A kingunt omnes operi peribusque rotarum subiciunt lapsus et stupea vincula callo intendunt. Scandit fatalis machina moros beta armis. Pueri circum inuptaeque puellae sacra canunt funemque manu contingere gaudent. Illa subit mediae queminans in labitur urbi. O patri, o di vum domus illi et in clutabello, moinia dardanidum, quater ipsin limine portae substitit, at cutero sonitum quater arma dedera. Instamus tamen immemores caecique furore, et monstrin felix sacrata systemus arce. Tunc etiam fatis aperet Cassandra futuris, Ora dei iusu non umquam credida tucris. Nos de lubra deum miseri, quibus ultimus eset, ille dies, festa velamos frande per urbem. We divide the walls and lay open the fortifications of the city. Everyone equips themselves for work and places the gliding of wheels under the feet and extends hempen cables from the neck. The fatal machine scales the walls pregnant with weapons. Boys and unwed girls sing sacred songs around it and rejoice to touch the rope with their hands. It goes up and threatening glides into the middle of the city. O homeland, O Ilium, divine home and Trojan walls renowned in war. Four times it halted on the very threshold of the gate and four times weapons gave a sound from the womb. We press on, nevertheless, heedless and blinded by madness, and we set the unlucky monster on the consecrated citadel. Even then, Cassandra opens her mouth for future fates, by the order of a god not ever believed by Trojans. We wretched ones, for whom that day was our last, veil the shrines of the gods with festive garlands through the city. Last time, Laocoon's violent death convinced the Trojans that they had to take the wooden horse inside the city. So they do, by tearing down their own walls. This is important because the walls of Troy were built by Neptune himself, and it was prophesied that no enemy army would be able to breach the walls. After ten years of trying, the Greeks had essentially proven this prophecy true. Ulysses' plan exploited a loophole in that prophecy by getting the Trojans to breach their own walls. Another essential piece of backstory for this episode involves Cassandra. She was one of the daughters of Priam, king of Troy. The story goes that Apollo, in an attempt to seduce Cassandra, offered her the gift of prophecy. When she refused his advances, he spit in her mouth and cursed her with the power of prophecy but with a twist. 
that she would be compelled to prophesy the truth, but nobody would ever believe her. Some of the stylistic features from Laocoon's speech in episode 11 reappear in this section, especially with Aeneas reflecting on the events as he tells them, interjecting his own evaluation from his present time, and lamenting the blindness and wretched fate of the Trojans. This scene is thick with episodes of irony and futility. The Trojans inexorable pressing on, despite the multiple reasons why they should have recognized the horse for what it was, the inverted imagery of the horse being pregnant with death, the ineffectiveness of Cassandra's prophecy of future doom, the multiple times the horse stopped at the threshold of the gates as though the city itself were trying to keep it out, the anguish in Aeneas's voice as he laments the fate of his homeland and the blindness of his people, the repetition of quater, quater, emphasizing the multiple chances they had to turn back from their doom, the joy and celebration of the people contrasted with the sorrow we know is coming up soon, that the scene ends with the Trojans spending their last day venerating the instrument of their doom and thanking the gods for their salvation. All these factors serve to evoke even deeper pathos for the Trojans and their wretched fate. But Virgil draws out empathy for the Trojans in even more subtle ways. For example, the weight of responsibility Aeneas feels for the Trojans bleeds through in his repeated use of the first plural verb endings, including himself in the group who brought the monster into the city every time he says we. There are 18 lines between where we end here and where the next AP section picks up. I want to present these lines to you in translation to set up for the next episode and the beginnings of the fall of the city. Meanwhile, the sky is turned over and night rushes from the ocean, wrapping in its great shade both earth and the heavens and the Myrmidon trick. The Teucrians fell silent, spread out through the walls, deep sleep embraces their weary limbs. And now the Argive phalanx, with ships drawn up, went from Tenedos through the friendly silence of the silent moon, seeking known shores. When the royal ship had extended flames, and defended by the unjust fates of the gods, Sinon secretly releases the pine bolt and the Greeks enclosed in the womb. The opened-up horse returns them to the air, and happily from the hollow oak the commanders, Thysandrus and Sthenelus, bring themselves forth, and dire Ulysses, having slid down through a dropped rope, and Achamus and Thoas and Pelides Neoptolemus, and first Machaon and Menelaus and Epeos himself, the builder of the trick. They invade the city buried in sleep and wine. The sentries are slaughtered, and with the gates lying open, all receive their companions and join Confederate battle lines. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How does the perspective of the Trojans at the time of the events differ from Aeneas' perspective as he looks back on them? How does Virgil show that Aeneas feels at least partially responsible for the fall of Troy? How does Virgil effectively use irony throughout the scene to evoke pathos in the audience? Caesar inserts his thoughts and opinions into his telling of the episode of Sabinus and Cotta's winter camp. How does he do this differently from Aeneas as he tells the story of the fall of Troy? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete.